Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we look back at establishment media's failure to report corporate interference with basic human biology. We'll look at deja vu news, eating and drinking, birthing and breastfeeding, important stories about our health that the corporate media either don't cover or distort. We'll be joined by co-authors of a chapter of a recent book, Shaley Voidel and Steve Masick. Later in the program, media scholar Steve Masick stays with us and is joined by the associate director of Project Censored, Andy Lee Roth. We'll talk about a billionaire's lawsuit against Beto O'Rourke in Texas that may stifle criticism of money in politics. Lawsuit shows the oligarchic desire to wield political influence without being subject to public accountability. We'll talk about dark money and the corporate press's inability to cover these issues with enough critical detail to bring it to public attention. All this and more on today's Project Censored show. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we are delighted to welcome back to the program Shaley Voidel and Steve Masick, who work with us at Project Censored. Today we're going to be discussing a contribution that they made to the recent book that we have out from Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. It's Project Censored State of the Free Press 2023. One of the chapters we do every year, and Steve and Shaley, our guests, whom I'll introduce in a moment, have been contributing to, is a chapter called Deja Vu News. Project Censored years ago, through Carl Jensen and Peter Phillips, our previous directors, they thought that the annual reporting about underreported and censored stories needed a follow-up component to show the depth and the cultural significance, sort of the architecture, if you will, of censorship and the history of it. And the project goes back to 1976, so there's a pretty rich background of the kinds of stories, not just specific stories, but the kinds of stories and the patterns of stories that happen to be censored. And each year, the Deja Vu Research Project, part of this, goes back and looks at previous year's stories, and it does an update on them. In other words, it goes back and says, well, what happened to this story from five years ago, ten years ago, that may still be quite relevant today? Was it picked up by the establishment press? Did the corporate media get around to covering that story? Or does it continue to languish in obscurity? And it's an important exercise for several reasons. The historian part of me has an obvious interest in this. The journalist part of me has another, and that's that we can continue to improve upon the way our so-called free press operates by reminding people in the establishment press that there are plenty of things to cover other than the Kardashians or, you know, the latest tripe scandal, what have you. So with us today, we have Shaley Voidel who graduated from North Central College outside of Chicago. She was co-author of the Deja Vu chapter in the last two Project Censored volumes. Shaley is a freelance journalist. She was our Project Censored research associate, but now is our editorial assistant. Shaley Voidel, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Steve Masick, always great to talk to you. Professor of Communication at North Central College outside Chicago. That's in Naperville, Illinois. You've been a frequent contributor to the project for years. When your op-eds and articles on media and politics and First Amendment have been published in Truthout, Common Dream, Z Magazine, Ms. Magazine, assorted other newspapers and online publications. And you recently have a piece with our Associate Director Andy Lee Roth at Truthout. Steve Masick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
And it's always a pleasure to be on also with Shaley, my former student. Deja Vu News, you all did something that I love that this is part of the research thread from this year. And you really looked at a particular pattern and thread through a specific theme. And again, the subtitle here is Deja Vu News, Eating and Drinking, Birthing and Breastfeeding, a look back at establishment media's failure to report corporate interference with basic human biology. So Steve Masick, let's start with you. Give us a quick background on, on how you've been conducting the Deja Vu research with us. And you might even want to kick us off with one of the specific stories. So normally when we do the research for the Deja Vu chapter, we just take stories that have been from like five or six years ago, interesting stories that we think have had interesting new developments or have all of a sudden made their way onto the national news agenda. And then we delve deep into those. This year, it's somewhat different because we chose a collection of stories from as far back as 20 years ago that all have to do with the way that corporations and their profit-seeking activities interfere with kind of human biology, with the human metabolism, with nature. And so among the stories that we looked at were stories that had to do with corporate pollution of the environment, with release of microplastics and toxic chemicals into the environment, stories that had to do with corporations' efforts to privatize water and the growing corporate control, oligopolistic or cartel control over the world's food supply and agriculture, as well as stories that had to do with corporate interference with breastfeeding and birthing. And I know Shaley is going to talk about some of those stories, but one that I'd like to highlight is the story that has to do with corporations seeking to privatize water. So this story first was listed on Project Censored's top 25 list of underreported stories back in 2001. And it had to do with the World Bank and multinational corporations, and in particular, Bechtel, pushing countries in the developing world and the global south to privatize their water systems. Now, as you know, across the global south, there are lots of countries that are highly indebted. They don't have a lot in the way of public resources or public assets that they can use to pay off those debts. And in Bolivia, the Bechtel Corporation pressed the government to privatize the water. It provoked a huge public outcry and a backlash and years and years of protest that took place. And we wanted to go back and look at this. And one of the things that we found was, so one of the things that Bechtel did, this private corporation that claimed to have ownership over the water of the Bolivian country, um, is it sued the Bolivian government for basically reneging on a deal to privatize their water system. This led to international outcry against this corporation, protests that took place out in front of their headquarters in San Francisco and, and in other places. And the lawsuit, which started back in the early 2000s, dragged out and was not finally resolved until January of 2006, when Bechtel agreed to settle for a symbolic payment of damages of 30 cents. So it dragged out for like six years after this story was first put on the Project Censored Top 25 list. 
Now, one of the things that we found out in looking back at this story is, yes, some of the protests that took place about Bechtel's behavior, about the push to privatize water in, in Bolivia did get some corporate news coverage, did get some corporate news coverage as the case wore on. But what was really striking is private corporations have been replicating this kind of behavior all over the world, pushing governments to privatize their water utilities, not to improve service for their citizens, because in most cases, when the water supply is privatized and control over water is privatized or water treatment is privatized, it results in poor service for citizens. But in order for private corporations to cash in and make money, and so in the chapter, in the deja vu section, we detail a number of these struggles that have taken place from Pittsburgh to other municipalities in the U.S. over privatization of water. And a lot of those struggles in Baltimore and, and, and other cities in the U.S., a lot of those struggles have not gotten adequate coverage by the corporate media and have been more covered in more depth by the independent and alternative media. That's the voice of Dr. Steve Masick, professor of communications, North Central College, contributor to the Deja Vu chapter in Project Censored's annual book. And we're going to turn here to Shaley Voidel to talk about another one of these stories. And we're going to stick on the water theme here. So we're going to talk about microplastics and toxic chemicals increasingly prevalent in the world's oceans. But Steve, really quickly, just to follow up before we, we shift over to Shaley, these corporations, too, that are trying to privatize water, whether it's Nestle or others, they've gone after journalists that try to report these stories. Abby Martin comes to mind, right? Abby Martin and the Empire Files, her work that she did on Breaking the Set. So there's multiple layers to this story that the legacy press should and could be covering, and they just tend not to. And let me just say that the independent media are really the alarm system for the public and drawing the public's attention to these things. So one just detail I want to make reference to, because I didn't refer to it before, out of the update of this story about privatization of water, is that in Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, he had originally included a provision that would have made it possible to create public-private partnerships that would have created sort of a loophole that would make it easier for cities and states to privatize their water supply. And it really was first reporting by independent journalists who drew attention to that. Now, that did eventually become a story that got picked up by the Washington Post and the New York Times. I mean, they did write about that, but it was the independent and alternative journalists who sounded the alarm that there was this provision in this infrastructure bill that would have made it easier to privatize water systems. Indeed, and Steve Masick, it's often the independent press that are the canaries in the coal mine that, that midwife these stories into the establishment. We're foreshadowing here what we'll be talking about later uh, when we get into cesarean sections and, and breastfeeding and some other concept, uh, some other topics that you all address in the chapter. But before we do that, Shaylee Voidel, you want to talk to us about microplastics and the world's oceans. This is an important deja vu story, and we've been covering that for some time. Shaylee. That was the number five story in last year's State of the Free Press the threat of microplastics to the world's oceans and the global seafood supply. And since then, the corporate press has followed up on more recent research about microplastics, but they paid 
little attention to that original story that was published in Medical News Today in 2020, which was based on a study about these toxic chemicals known as PFAs and microplastics found in seafood sold in Australian markets. And Truthout also reported in 2020 that these forever chemicals, this exposure, increased a person's risk of certain cancers, could cause liver damage, thyroid problems, and also someone with elevated levels of chemicals in their system would also be twice as likely to develop a severe form of COVID. So in September 2020, over 70 countries signed a voluntary pledge in an attempt to, among other things, stop plastic from entering the ocean by 2050. But notably, the United States didn't sign, United States didn't sign, Brazil didn't sign, India, Australia, China, Russia, they didn't agree to the pledge. But days after the State of the Free Press 2022 was published, a new study revealed that microplastics caused damage to human cells in the laboratory at levels known to be eaten by people via their food. And then by spring, there was a new discovery of microplastics detected in human blood, and that was in Environmental International. There was another study that revealed that microplastics were discovered in 11 of 13 lung tissue samples taken from patients undergoing surgery. And so in March of last year, 175 countries, with the support of the United Nations Environmental Assembly, agreed to develop a global treaty to limit plastic waste, which will be hopefully finalized next year. And I mean, obviously, it's great that this story is getting more traction. Microplastics are getting more traction in the mainstream news. It's been covered by USA Today, Fortune, Bloomberg, NBC. But I think what's really important to note about this story is that our addiction to plastic as a society is so harmful, so dangerous. And I don't think that the corporate media pays as much attention consistently to that issue in particular as they maybe should. And Shaley Voidel, you you write in the Deja Vu chapter that for initiatives like the UN Treaty on Plastic Waste to be successful, the media will have to do a much better job of informing the public about the health and environmental crisis being created by our addiction to plastic. You just said that. And it warrants repetition because there's plenty of repetition in our media about a lot of things that we don't either need to know or care about. And these kind of stories, especially the deja vu stories, these stories aren't necessarily new. And what you're showing us and reminding us is that these aren't going away. And unless we are better informed about what's happening, we cannot mobilize and engage civically to make significant differences. And so the media plays a, a key role, Shaley. The media plays a key role. The corporate press struggles to cover problems that require long-term solutions. And mm -hmm. many of these stories are environment-related. The progress is slow-moving. And there's not that time that's devoted to properly and fully cover these large-scale societal problems that require systemic change. And I think the mistake is thinking that readers will get bored of this kind of news when the implications are so dire. So I think that's why this chapter is so important to remind people that we're still thinking about these stories, even if the corporate press isn't covering them. 
That's the voice of Shaley Voidel, editorial assistant with us, also co-author of Deja Vu News. We're also speaking with Dr. Steve Masick. He's also co-author and researcher on the Deja Vu News Project with us here at Project Censored. I'm Mickey Huff, the host of the Project Censored show. We are going to continue our conversation with Shaley Voidel and Steve Masick after this brief musical break. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we are delighted to be speaking with researchers and authors Steve Masick and Shaley Voidel, co-authors of the Deja Vu News chapter and our annual work. You can find our work available for free online at projectcensored.org, including a lot of the stories that are being referenced today. The theme of today's conversation relating to this publication, eating and drinking, birthing and breastfeeding, a look back at the establishment media's failure to report corporate interference with basic human biology. The first segment we heard from Steve Masick talking about global implications of water privatization. We just heard from Shaley Voidel on the, the ongoing challenges of microplastics in the ocean that are now in our human bodies through food supply. And Shaley, let's continue with you. Again, a reminder, Shaley Voidel graduated from North Central College, co-author of the Deja Vu chapter for Project Censored the last two years, now our editorial assistant, and also Steve Masick, professor of communications at North Central College, frequent contributor to the project. Steve, we're going to come back to you here in a moment, but we want to go from the plastics and the water. We want to go to the issues about birthing, breastfeeding, and Shaley, I know you have some things that you want to say about this based on your research. There was a story that was originally in Censored 2001. It was about a Guatemalan law that was designed to better inform new mothers of the benefits of breastfeeding and some of the risks associated with breast milk substitutes. For example, Gerber and other formula manufacturers were prohibited from marketing to mothers in hospitals from sending out free samples of their products. And they also said, hey, you can't have that cute little chubby baby on your packaging anymore. And Gerber was like, absolutely not. And they fought it before a World Trade Organization tribunal and won. And a lot has happened since then. Corporate greed. Probably the significant update was that in 2018, the UN wanted to discuss a resolution that would prevent these erroneous marketing claims in formula products, basically knocking out anything that suggested that their products were more nutritious than breast milk. And this was a big upset for U.S. <laughs> formula giants Abbott and, and Mead Johnson. And so the United States said, you have to remove the passage from this resolution about protecting, promoting, and supporting breastfeeding. And the U.S. even threatened to impose tariffs and withdraw military aid from Ecuador, who was set to introduce this resolution if, if they went ahead without the U.S.'s suggested edits. 
This led to, of course, a Twitter tirade from Trump who called the New York Times coverage of the UN resolution fake news. And <laughs> he said that he supported breastfeeding, but that formula was essential for women living in poverty who had babies that were at risk of malnutrition. And while there are many reasons that a parent might choose to feed their baby formula. It might be medical, it might be personal choice or circumstance. But what we know is that formula is the more costly option and breast milk contains nutrients that can't be found in any formula. And so no one was suggesting that formula shouldn't be an option for parents, just that formula manufacturers marketing is misleading. At any rate, the resolution was ultimately introduced by Russia and it passed without any of the US's edits. And the corporate media have steadily covered breastfeeding news in the U.S. since this story was covered by Project Censored in, in 2001. But they haven't really examined the implications of these formula manufacturers' predatory marketing. Absolutely. Shaley Voidel. And Steve Masick, let's go to you and connect the thread there, and then we'll come back to Shaley for another example. Happy to talk about the update that we included in this year's chapter about the cesarean section epidemics. Before we do that, let's connect this other dot. I'm, I'm thinking about formula and food, global food cartels, right? Be, f because global food cartels are fast becoming the world's supermarket. And again, this is kind of a promotional thing, right? The, the, there's a big ad campaign. There's a lot of control over this. And then, of course, we're going to come back and do cesarean sections. And you and Shaley can both talk about that. So... The story that we updated concerning the global food cartel was back in 2005, close to 20 years ago, there was an article in a magazine that's now defunct Left Turn that you know noted that a shrinking number of large conglomerates control the majority of the world's food production and food distribution. And as the news about like inflation and the soaring cost of eggs recently has underscored, this is not a problem that's gone away. In fact, in the interim, in the past two decades or so since this story was put on Project Censor's top 25 list, the problem has only gotten worse. So as we note in the update, a number of giant conglomerates, for example, Dow and DuPont, Bayer and Monsanto, who are manufacturers of fertilizers, pesticides, and also produce a lot of seeds that are used in commercial agriculture, have merged with each other. And we've seen this just dramatic increase in consolidation over what you could call the agricultural inputs. For example, recent reports suggest that just three companies control 83% of U.S. corn seed sales. Wow. Three companies. 70% of the global pesticide market is controlled by just three companies. But the problem doesn't just end with these sorts of inputs. It also has to do with egg production, meat production of various kinds. One of the reports that we make reference to in this chapter notes that between 1970 and 2015, the number of independent egg producers shrank from 10,000 companies in 1970 to 200 in 2015. And that actually makes our food supply a lot more vulnerable, as we point out in the update. 
because when you have fewer large egg producers, huge farms with all of these big coops, they're much more susceptible to outbreaks of avian flu, which is actually what has just happened recently is one of the reasons why egg prices have been soaring is that there are fewer and fewer egg producers. So if one giant farm is hit with an outbreak of avian flu, it shuts down a major portion of the egg supply. Not only that, but the distribution end of our food supply has also become increasingly consolidated in the hands of a very few companies. We make reference to a 2021 joint investigation that was conducted by The Guardian um, and the Food and Water Watch into the illusion of choice that defines the American grocery industry. What they did is they went through and looked at all of the items on grocery store shelves, and they found that most of those items are produced by just a very few companies. This was a study of more than 60 categories of everyday food items found that despite a variety of lines and labels, nearly 80% were sold by four or fewer mega firms. Well, Steve, that's same as media. There are six major companies, big tech, four. It's a pattern across the spectrum. It is a pattern across the sector. It's the same as our medical supplies, the same as big pharma, same as our financial institutions, the same thing is happening in banking. But it's especially alarming when what we're talking about is our food. And largely this has gone unreported in the corporate media, except as a business story. So obviously the Wall Street Journal and the business page of the New York Times and the Washington Post report in detail about these mergers, the merger between Bayer and Monsanto, because that matters to the investors, when in fact it should be front page news that a shrinking number of companies control the supply of food and a shrinking number of companies control its distribution and sale. That should be front page news, but it's not. Absolutely. Steve Masick. And Steve, you alluded to the other story that we were going to get to here. One of the other stories that you went back and looked at goes back to the mid-1990s, Public Citizen. You know, one of the many, 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 many things Ralph Nader has had hands in over the years. You researched cesarean sections epidemic. This is the oldest of the stories on the list. It was a Public Citizen report that was released in 1994, and, and it revealed that at the time, one in four uh, births in the United States, one in four pregnant women delivered via C-section in that year, which as Project Censored characterized it, is an epidemic of C-sections. Now, nobody is saying that cesarean sections are not necessary in certain cases. Sometimes they're necessary to save the life of the mother. Sometimes they're necessary because the fetus is exhibiting extreme distress. There are absolutely occasions when C-sections are necessary, but every kind of medical association that has looked at this, every doctor's group that has looked at this has said that's an outrageously high number. As the original report noted, that high number of cesarean deliveries in the U.S. back in, in, in the mid-90s may have been related to finances, may have been related to health insurance. So for example, there was a study that found that for-profit hospitals had a much higher rate of cesarean deliveries than public. Also, there was a speculation in the report that maybe doctors were delivering more by C-section out of fear of being hit by malpractice lawsuits. There was another study that found that women who delivered later in the day 
when there are fewer doctors on call, we're more likely to deliver back in the mid-90s by C-section. Now, I'm happy to report that this is one issue about which there has been, since it was originally flagged by Project Censored, growing public concern. Medical associations, states, I mean, even the federal government have created standards that encourage appropriate use of, of C-sections, but really try to encourage pregnant women to have natural births. One of the big changes that's taken place is back in the mid-90s, it was common wisdom in the OBGYN community if a woman had delivered by C-section to encourage her to deliver her subsequent pregnancies via C-section. Now it is common practice to have women delivered vaginally who have had C-sections. But one of the things that is alarming is, well, C-sections have sort of plateaued and somewhat declined here in the U.S. thanks to this growing awareness, and especially in the medical community, that we had too many C-sections back in the 90s. Internationally, the number of C-sections continue to climb. So it is now close to 20% internationally, which is getting back to that epidemic number. Well, Steve Masick, we've covered issues around midwifery at the project for a long time, including going all the way back over 10 years with Ina Mae Gaskin. There's been an attack on midwives, on natural births as being something that's outside the, the corporate medical establishment that's been very problematic. There have been laws passed to try to limit the kinds of care that midwives can offer. And again, mid midwifery has long, long argued about natural birth. And so it's interesting to see that some in the corporate medical establishment are catching up to what many midwives have known for ages and ages. And in fact, our co-host Eleanor Goldfield actually just did a segment not long ago with a midwife discussing some of these issues. You all have done amazing work and you always have so much to offer. Shaylee Voidel, we wanted to come back over to you to wrap up the segment. You co-authored this work, Deja Vu News, for Project Censored, along with Mac Palator and also Issa Chudzik. You two both worked with them putting this together. So Shaylee, let's, let's give you the final word here. Just a conclusion about the work that you've done the importance of the deja vu work and what are some lessons maybe that you you've taken from this and you think that people should be mindful of like you said this is my second time contributing to the deja vu chapter and i think this is particularly special this one because they all share this common theme we've talked about it corporate power interfering and disrupting parts of human biological life it's interesting to continuously follow up with these stories. I mean, there was one in last year's about eight can't wait. And I think those particular stories are always evolving. And so even when you don't see it in the corporate media, it's still important to follow up and to wonder and to be curious about these things because they are affecting us in different ways all the time, especially these stories, these environmental related stories. It's something that, you know, is not maybe consistently talked about in the corporate media, but something that readers maybe are will be reminded to to follow up on their own as well in the years to come. I think, too, the historical context is is important and the corporate media miss many of these stories and continue to. So imagine just rank and file citizens, common folks, if these major media outlets that people rely on don't report on them. You know, it's like the tree that falls in the forest. No one's there to hear it. Doesn't make a sound. Well, the deja vu chapter reminds us that it does make a sound. It does have impact. And it's the it's the often the independent press that hears it and then tries to amplify it so others can learn about these kind of things, because these challenges are long 
standing in the making. Oftentimes, the things that we see in the headlines didn't just happen today or yesterday. There's a long history to them. And that's why I think that the utility of the deja vu research, I think, is, is fascinating and significant. So thanks so much for, for doing it. And thanks for joining us on the show today, Shaley. Thank you so much, Mickey. Steve Masick, final words from you. I would just second everything Shelley was saying there about the importance of this chapter. It's important also because in this chapter, we sometimes give credit to corporate media when they do pick up on important stories that first were covered by the independent and alternative press, but they finally do make their way into the national news agenda and become part of public discourse. So I think it's important to acknowledge when that happens. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen all that often. Well, Steve Masick, Shaley Voidel, thank you so much for joining us on the Project Censored Show. We've been talking about deja vu news, eating and drinking, birthing and breastfeeding. I'll look back at the establishment media's failure to report corporate interference with basic human biology. Steve and Shaley, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on the program in the future. Thanks, thanks Mickey. So much. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're going to continue into the next segment with our guest, Steve Masick. He'll be joined by the Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. We'll be talking about a billionaire's lawsuit against Beto O'Rourke in Texas that may stifle criticism of money in politics. The lawsuit shows the oligarchic desire to wield political influence without being subject to public accountability. Stay tuned on the Project Censored show. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment, we're going to talk about dark money and politics. There is a recent article up at truthout.org. Billionaires' lawsuit against Beto O'Rourke may stifle criticism of money and politics. The lawsuit shows the oligarchic desire to wield political influence without being subject to public accountability. The authors of the piece are Steve Masick, whom we just spoke with in the first segment, Professor of Communication and Media Studies at North Central College, co-coordinator of Project Censored's campus affiliate program. He is joined by Andy Lee Roth, the Associate Director of Project Censored, co-coordinator of the campus affiliates program. He's former faculty member in sociology at Citrus College, Pomona College, and Sonoma State University. And he's also co-editor of Project Censored State of the Free Press 2023. Steve Masick is a longtime contributor to Project Censored. Gentlemen, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Thanks so much, Mickey. Thanks, Mickey. Yeah, great to be with you. It's great to have you both here. And you start your article talking about a recent Texas lawsuit has opened a new front in the ongoing battle over the reign of money in politics, making it a prime example of how wealthy individuals and mighty corporations seek to wield political influence while avoiding public accountability. So, Andy, do we want to start off with you and get some of the facts on the case here? Sure. This is in reference to a lawsuit being brought by Kelsey Warren, a Texas billionaire whose fortune derives from gas and oil pipelines. And Warren is bringing a suit against 
Beta O'Rourke that goes back to events that occurred when O'Rourke was running to challenge Greg Abbott for the governor of Texas. During that campaign, O'Rourke was outspokenly critical of both Greg Abbott and Kelsey Warren for actions or inaction, as the case may be, that dated back to the February 2021 winter ice storm that hit Texas. Winter Storm Uri, as it came to be known, cut the power for more than four and a half million Texas residents. It led to several hundred deaths. A BuzzFeed report in May of 2021 disputed the uh, official state totals, the death toll of the storm. That storm also produced $2.4 billion in profits for Kelsey Warren's company, Energy Transfer Partners, one of many energy providers that made windfall profits as a result of the deadly winter storm in February 2021. So on the campaign trail, Beta O'Rourke was critical of both Warren and Warren's company and energy providers in Texas more generally for profiteering off of this disaster, and also critical of Governor Greg Abbott for basically letting these energy companies off the hook. There was a loophole that allowed natural gas companies like Energy Transfer to opt out of any kind of future efforts to winterize energy infrastructure. In other words, measures that would reduce the likelihood of a future disaster like the one that took place in early 2021. O'Rourke was critical of that, but what he was most critical of on the campaign trail was that shortly after the governor signed this legislation with its loophole for some of the energy providers who, who profited off of the disaster. Kelsey Warren, the Texas billionaire, made a huge donation, one of many political donations Warren's made, but Warren specifically made a huge donation to Greg Abbott. And O'Rourke called this out as an example of payback for legislation that was beneficial to his company. So Warren now is suing O'Rourke, claiming that O'Rourke's criticisms defamed him, Warren, and caused him, Warren, mental anguish. So that's the terms of the lawsuit itself. And what Steve and I are doing in the article that Truthout published is looking at what we see to be some of the likely trajectory of the case the key issue of the case is, can individuals, extremely wealthy individuals, use their wealth to basically silence their critics and avoid public accountability? So in the truth out piece that Steve and I published, we're thinking about Kelsey Warren's case against O'Rourke, against a larger backdrop of the role of money in politics and how money in politics can not only distort the political process, but also erode public faith in the political process. Well, Andy Lee Roth, uh, you mentioned mental anguish. Warren's claim the mental anguish 
I think Ted Cruz's dog would have a better case of that when he went cruising off to Cancun during the disaster. But that's another show. Steve Masick, Andy just left us with just a wide open issue and Project Censored for years has been covering these issues of dark money in politics or you know money and in, in corruption in politics, paying to play, paying for favors. I mean, much of this does look like legalized bribery, but to flip it around and actually have a lawsuit about it against O'Rourke for saying nothing really inaccurate. We argue in this article that this lawsuit by Warren is a classic example of uh, what's called a slap, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. This is when usually a wealthy individual or a corporation brings a civil suit against somebody for what is First Amendment protected political expression. This is a tried and true tactic by corporations and wealthy individuals who oftentimes are fighting against media organizations who are trying to hold them accountable for actions that they might take that may be harmful to the public. So some of your listeners may remember the famous lawsuit that was brought by a group of cattle ranchers against Oprah Winfrey because she ran a segment on her show called Dangerous Food, where she talked about the possibility that mad cow disease might be tainting the U.S. beef supply. And on the show, she said, I'll never eat another hamburger again. And these cattle ranchers brought a lawsuit basically saying that she had defamed beef, the food beef. Before that, there was a quite a famous lawsuit brought by apple growers in the state of Washington over a segment that ran on 60 Minutes, drawing attention to the fact that some of the pesticides that were used on apple trees in, in Washington might be carcinogenic. Those are the kinds of slap suits that we're most used to. Oftentimes, these actions are brought in court not because the plaintiff has any real reasonable hope of success. They're doing it mainly to, first of all, force defendants to shell out huge amounts of money and legal fees, to tie them up in court, and to sort of harass them using the legal system. What's unprecedented, I think, about the Warren case is this is not being brought against a media organization or journalists who are normally the targets of slap suits. This is being brought against a politician who was on the campaign trail making speeches on the campaign trail, engaging in what is classic First Amendment protected speech. If the First Amendment protects anything at all, it protects the speech of political candidates criticizing their opponents on the campaign trail. So it is really stunning. In the article, Andy and I make the argument that this is very likely, just on its face as a defamation suit, unlikely to succeed. And it's unlikely to succeed for a number of reasons. First of all, under Texas law, one defense against defamation is truth. If the charges that O'Rourke was making on the campaign trail were true, then Warren cannot really claim damages. And all of the facts that are available to the public seem to point to the conclusion that the charges he was making about influence buying, about Warren buying influence with Abbott to get special favor for energy transfer partners, his company, were true. Second, it was very clear that when he was using terms like bribery, which he did use on the campaign trail, that it was his opinion and his opinion of Warren. And 
you cannot claim damages for derogatory subjective opinions. So just because somebody has a derogatory subjective opinion of you doesn't mean you can sue them for that, especially if it is clear that it is a subjective opinion. You can sue them, but not win. And then the final thing I just want to say is that according to the legal definition of a public figure, as it's been established in the case law, going back to New York Times v. Sullivan and Gertz v. Welsh, two important cases that set limits to the kind of damages or the ability of public figures or elected officials to claim damages in defamation suits. According to their definition, Warren is clearly a public figure because he's somebody with general fame or notoriety in the community with a pervasive involvement in the ordering of the affairs of society. As such, in order to be able to get damages from O'Rourke, Warren would have to prove that O'Rourke deliberately spread falsehoods designed to defame him. That is, that he engaged in actual malice. And there's no evidence at all of that. So we don't think the lawsuit is likely to prevail in court. However, that isn't the point, as we argue in the piece. The point is not to actually win in court. It is to force O'Rourke to hire lawyers to defend him. It is to tie him up in court. And it is to muddy the issues that he was speaking about in the public eye. And it's also to intimidate anybody else who may want to make criticisms of Warren. You know, people are going to think twice about criticizing him or his company, knowing that they could be hit with one of these slaps. Well, Steve Masick, I just wanted to point out for our listeners, you and Andy Lee Roth cite Gertz v. Welsh from 1974 in your truth out article. And then of course you point out that the purpose isn't necessarily to win. And then you go on to talk about how Warren may win, even if he loses these cases. And we'll talk more about that and more about dark money in politics. I'd like to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff, your host. We're speaking with Andy Lee Roth and Steve Masick. We're discussing a recent article at truthout.org. A billionaire's lawsuit against Beto O'Rourke may stifle criticism of money in politics. We'll continue that conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we are still speaking with Dr. Steve Masick from North Central College, and we are also joined by the Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. They are authors of a recent article at truthout.org looking at dark money and politics, specifically citing a case going on in Texas, a billionaire's lawsuit against Beto O'Rourke, and how it may stifle criticism of money in politics. And before the break, Steve Masick, you were outlining for us, you and Andy were outlining what the case is, what the issue with slap suits happened to be. But then Steve Masick, you ended by saying that Warren may even win just by tying Beto O'Rourke up in court. So Andy, do you want to come in here and talk a little bit more about some of the broader issues with this? Just sticking to the issues of the Warren case for a moment, this is Texas, and in effect, Warren is 
playing the equivalent of a high stakes game of Texas Hold'em poker. He doesn't have much of a hand. His cards are crummy for all the reasons that Steve outlined a moment ago. But if he can bluff with that hand and get O'Rourke to fold, the chilling effect shifting now from poker metaphors to <laughs> press metaphors, the chilling effect will be significant. He'll, he may lose in court, but still win the larger battle. The big frame for this story is what's at stake when wealthy individuals and powerful corporations attempt to use their wealth and their influence to stifle public criticism and therefore avoid public accountability for their conduct. Those are ultimately, without much further explanation, straightforward counter-democratic outcomes. They go against the grain of everything we understand about a nation under rule of law and democratic processes. And that's exactly where an analysis of, of SLAPs, these strategic lawsuits against public participation, is important. Because as the founders of that concept, a sociologist, Penelope Canaan, and a law professor, George Pring, wrote way back in 1988 when they coined the term, they defined SLAPs in terms of attempts to use civil tort action to stifle political expression. So the whole point is that the aim is to stifle political expression, to reduce the likelihood that people will speak out. And this is, as Steve's pointed out, typically slaps are registered against media outlets and journalists. And one of the things that's novel in this case that is in effect an escalation of how slaps are used to affect public discourse is that this time the slap, Kelsey Warren's defamation suit, is being used to target a political candidate. Can I jump in here? Yeah, please do, Steve Masick. And add just a couple of other pieces of context that we make reference to in the piece. What's interesting about this, that Warren is bringing what is clearly a strategic lawsuit against public participation, is that Texas is one of 28 states in the country that has an anti-SLAP law. So there is a law in the books in Texas, it's called the Texas Citizen Participation Act, which gives defendants of these frivolous SLAP actions the ability to request that the case be dismissed on the grounds that they're being sued because of their First Amendment protected speech. So there is this law on the books already that O'Rourke can use to protect himself against this suit. What's even more interesting to me about this is that since Abbott has become governor, there's been an effort at the state legislature to water down and render toothless the Texas Citizen Participation Act. So really interestingly, there's a group called Texans for Lawsuit Reform, I believe, which is a front group for a bunch of powerful corporations that want to do what's sometimes what conservatives call tort reform. They want to make changes to the law to put limits on the amount of damages that ordinary citizens can claim in the event of being like injured because of pollution or a defective product or whatever. They basically want to water down the tort laws in Texas. This group you think would be in favor of a slap law, but instead they've been lobbying to render it more toothless. Nevertheless, efforts at the state legislature, which have passed to kind of limit the scope and effectiveness of the Texas Citizen Participation Act, um, probably are not going to affect a work's ability 
um, to use this. What the reform did was it said that in order to have a slap suit dismissed, the defendant has to demonstrate that their claim for it being dismissed is based on their First Amendment speech and association rights rather than simply related to them. But in this case, we don't think that this is really going to affect O'Rourke's ability to ask for an immediate dismissal under this law. But I do think it's ironic that there are these powerful forces that want to water down these anti-slap laws, and especially this one in the case of Texas. You also point out in the article, when you're discussing how Warren may win, even if he loses, you do mention a UK-based foreign policy center that discusses about how 70 percent of surveyed journalists reported facing legal threats. How common is this practice? Incredibly common. And as that report makes clear, it's much more common in certain other countries that do not have anti-slap laws. So Britain, the UK, is sort of ground zero for slap suits being brought against investigative journalists, corporations, corrupt oligarchs, and so on, who are being investigated for various kinds of corruption, will bring their actions, will bring their lawsuits in London because it is such a favorable environment for bringing a defamation lawsuit. We're familiar with this here. I mean, there have been lots of famous cases like the Westmoreland case where people wanting to sue U.S. journalists for defamation have brought lawsuits over in England against Americans have brought lawsuits in England or in the U.K. against U.S.-based media organizations just because they happen to have like a British edition so that they can more easily bring a defamation suit. This is something that we're very familiar with, but it is very alarming that the report found that so many reporters involved in reporting on things like the Panama Papers and other international financial scandals have been subjected to this kind of legal harassment. So legal harassment it does require deep pockets to be able to, to file these suits, and we're back to the issue of money and money in politics. So back to you, Andy Lee Roth. This is something that we've covered at Project Censored for some time, the, the dark money issue in politics. As listeners of this program may know, the Project Censored top 25 story list for the past year includes no fewer than three stories about dark money. These are stories that are important but underreported in the corporate media. Where Steve and I leave off in the Truth Out article about the Warren lawsuit against O'Rourke is to try to understand this slap suit against the backdrop of dark money in politics, where the common denominator of the two is an effort to use money to avoid public scrutiny, to use money to exert influence without being subject to public scrutiny or critique. So dark money, political spending by organizations that aren't required to disclose their individual donors has a corrosive effect on not only politics, as I've said earlier, but also on public trust in government and especially elections. And we know as State of the Free Press 2023, the latest censored yearbook went to press, we know that there were at least a dozen states that were either considering legislation or had passed legislation that would actually make it more difficult for investigative journalists and other public interest groups to expose dark money contributions. So in effect, making dark money darker. And I think the same principle, the connecting principle, the ruthless connecting principle here 
between the states making it more difficult to disclose dark money in politics and the war and lawsuit against O'Rourke is this oligarchic desire to wield influence without being subject to public criticism or accountability. And both of those, as I've said previously, are fundamentally counter-democratic sensibilities. That's the voice of Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored. Steve Masick, any final words from you as we round out this segment? It is just one of the many ways in which people with very deep pockets, the powerful, the wealthy, giant corporations are able to evade public accountability. They can do it through bringing these slap lawsuits. They can do it by using dark money, unaccountable, invisible, hard to trace money to lobby for laws in state legislatures and in Congress. They can do it by using dark money to fund attack ads, attacking political candidates or to attack nominees for judgeships. It has brought about a crisis in democracy in this country. And it's no wonder that year in and year out, among the stories that Project Censored has identified as the least well covered by the corporate media, the most ignored are stories that have to do with the nefarious influence of dark money over uh, political life. Steve Masick, Professor of Communication and Media Studies at North Central College, co-coordinator of Project Censored's campus affiliate program. Before that, Andy Lee Roth, the Associate Director of Project Censored, also co-coordinator of the campus affiliate program. They were co-authors of a piece at truthout.org, published January 28th. You can go to truthout.org to see it. Billionaire's lawsuit against Beto O'Rourke may stifle criticism of money in politics. Andy Lee Roth, Steve Masick, thank you so much for joining us today on the Project Censored show. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks so much. Well, that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show today. I'm Mickey Huff, executive director and founding co-host of the program with Dr. Peter Phillips, our former director. Eleanor Goldfield is our current co-host and an associate producer. Anthony Fest is our senior producer and the man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on some 50 stations around the U.S. and is available as a podcast streaming online. Thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.